My name is George Crawford. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. I've had the privilege of serving in that capacity for those of you who are new here since 1996. We welcome you to this time, this session and Sundays in July. This morning, the topic is speaking the truth in love. Uh, We have one session or one section of uh, the screen is working. I'm not sure why the other isn't. Uh, It may well be that the uh, technical people can get it uh, intact before the uh, morning is over. We're going to cover uh, one of the most important topics in all of Scripture, and that is how we communicate. Now, the tendency would be to think that this is a how-to session. How do I go out of here being able to speak more effectively, speak more carefully, speak wiser? And it will be that but it is far more important, far more significant than that. Improper communication can demonstrate extremely serious spiritual problems. We are coming out of a very difficult period of time, the pandemic uh, and its impact on the churches both here in America as well as internationally. We have had differences of opinion within the church on the extent to which we are subject to the government, to the extent to which we should act contrary to the government dictates. Make no mistake, we feel strongly at Grace Community Church uh, in the direction that we have taken. Nonetheless, Uh, A separate problem has emerged in that there have at times been very inappropriate and egregious comments made, often on social media. Uh, I saw not too long ago where one individual, and I would agree with him uh, that we should be meeting, but he referred to individuals uh, who held to the other opinion, used the expression hypocritical pigs and ignoramuses. This kind of name-calling, this kind of slander is totally unacceptable. Uh, It has grieved me in my spirit. Uh, I have seen it. Uh, Tactically, it goes contrary to what we need to do uh, if we are going to be uh, continuing to function as a church. If we move into the era of post-COVID, we are going to need to be establishing a certain reconciliation Uh, with believers who may have held to a different perspective. I'm not talking about apostates labeling themselves as Christians. I am talking about people who hold to the fundamental doctrines of justification by faith, the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, and yet who have struggled with the extent to which we apply Romans 13 in this situation. Probably no better chapter in all of Scripture on the topic of communication exists than Ephesians chapter 4. To the extent we can, we're going to try to fly through this, uh, examining a portion of that text. I'm going to consider or raise 10 questions that should guide our thinking, that we should uh, take seriously into account Uh, as we examine our communication. For some, we may need to remember that the constant reality of the lifestyle of a believer 
is ongoing repentance. There needs to be repentance with regards to some of the communication that has taken place. Uh, I attempt, I will attempt to end at approximately somewhere between 9.30 and 9.45 so that we can take some time for question and answers. Now, before I go any further, I want to honor and thank my family, my daughters-in-law, Carly and Anna, my sons, Steve and Mike, and most of all, my wife, Anne. Without any exception, uh, they have provided incredible help uh, as I've gone about preparing for this. Both my son, Steve, and my daughter-in-law, Anna, have also taught on aspects of this subject. You can find it at www.gbchutch.org. Steve's lesson is titled, uh, to locate it among the others that he's taught, How to Be a Relational Terrorist. Uh, very well done. He listened to his dad as we were growing up. Uh, and I will not take offense if you prefer or find either of their teaching more preferable than what you hear this morning. All right, take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning, and we will not do the entire text in the interest of time. I will refer back to portions of it as we go through. Therefore I, Paul writes, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience. We've already talked about patience this morning. Showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And the verses cited are Ephesians 4, 1 through 7, 14 through 15, verse 25, and then 29 through 32. Ten questions. Ten questions to ask concerning our communication, 
our communication in written form, what we put out on social media, what we send out on email, our communication orally, what we stay, what we... Once again, patience. Is our communication characterized by humility? We need to go back. <laughs> yes, I am. You know what? I'll just go on without it. Is our communication characterized by true humility? We should never lose sight of the fact that grace has been extended to us. Paul writes, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given. At the end of the chapter, he says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We should never lose sight of the fact that this is to be a genuine humility. Plato talks about a man who his pride could be seen through the rags that he was wearing. He was trying to act humbly, but it was not genuine. Our humility must be genuine with a continual remembrance that we have received grace we have been forgiven much. We have no right, no, ob- no ability to withhold that forgiveness from anyone else. Thank you, folks. Looks as if we have uh, the ability to be seen on both sides. Continuing that thought, guard diligently against letting your communication be colored or governed in any way by pride or by an undue, unjustified evaluation of yourself. Keep in mind that Genesis 11 and the account of the Tower of Babel tells us that the horrific confusion and division caused by different languages was ultimately due to nothing more and nothing less than what Chrysostom referred to as the mother of hell, the sin of pride. Lesson Question number one, is our communication governed by pride or by a true and genuine humility? Is our communication, next question, and it's closely related, is it consistent with the nature and character of God? You see that in Ephesians 4 where Paul refers to himself, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. He understood that every aspect of his circumstances was subject to the divine and sovereign control of God. One of uh, my favorite verses, and it's often overlooked in the church, Ecclesiastes 5 tells us that when we come to church, we need to carefully guard our words because we are coming into the manifest intimate presence 
of the almighty, omnipresent God of the universe. And there is, a con- there is a, uh, uh, something of a paradox in what I just said. Those of you that are listening closely will realize that. But as we come into the intimate presence of God, we need to guard our conversation. Ecclesiastes 5.2, God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Proverbs 21.23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. You have in front of you a verse that should always be remembered when you are putting something into written form on social media or an email. When there are many words, where there is a multitude of words, transgression is unavoidable. You want to fall into sin? Open up your mouth and start talking. (laughs) One of the greatest minds in the history of the church, probably the greatest theological mind uh, of the medieval church, was a man by the name of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas's nickname, and it referred probably both to his build, uh, but more likely than that to his manner of communication, his nickname was the dumb ox. Anything but unintelligent, Aquinas was very careful and very guarded in what he spoke. Uh, Another more recent illustration, Dr. MacArthur has mentioned Dr. Charles Feinberg. Uh, my friend and fellow elder, Irv Busenitz, has uh, mentioned to me that uh, Dr. Feinberg had a mantra, uh, and I've tried, probably not very successfully, uh, to live it out, but he made the comment, he said, speak little, heard much. Speak much, heard little. Okay? Speak little, heard much. Speak much, heard little. As a general rule... When it comes to communication, less is more. More often than not, less will prove to be more valuable uh, than a great volume of words. It's far easier. And uh, those of you who Han is over there who have practiced law know that it is all too easy for an attorney in litigation to talk his way out of a victory than to talk his way into one. So this is something that's very important. Is our communication consistent with God's creation? Genesis 1.27 tells us that man was created in the image of God. One key aspect of that was the ability to communicate. In Genesis 1.27, we actually read intertrinitarian communication. Let us make man in our own image. We can overlook that. We understand the fact that we are created in the image of God as providing value and dignity to man. Based on Genesis 9, we understand that being created in the image of God actually justifies capital punishment in some circumstances. But we can lose sight of the fact that being created in the image of God also calls for great care in how we communicate with each other and how we refer to and describe each other. We have to ask ourselves, does our communication reflect the honor and the privilege of being created in the image of God? 
Or do you hypocritically and without integrity claim to love and honor God while cursing those made in his image? James 3, verse 9, tells us that there is no way that we can permissibly have that as a part of our conduct. Is our communication consistent with the holiness of God? Isaiah 6 tells us of the uh, time when Isaiah was given the privilege, the shock, the charm, and the obligation of having a beatific vision of the sovereign God of the universe seated on his throne. What was Isaiah's reaction? When he saw the sovereign God of the universe, he realized that he was undone. Scripture tells us no man can look on the face of God and live. He realized that he was ruined. And why? Ultimately, it was because, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I have a dirty mouth. My communication was not consistent with the holiness of God. We have to ask ourselves, are we people who our communication honors the holiness of God? I had to deal with this when I was a collegian. James 3 tells us that we are to be, in our communication, conduits of fresh water. He says, does it make any sense for fresh water and salt water to come out of the same pipe? And in the uh, instance that I was living in, it was more like fresh water and sewer water uh, was coming out of the same pipe. I had to repent. I did. And it is still an area where, although not fully successful at all times, uh, I've continued to be repenting and continue to try to grow in that regard. The scripture tells us that out of the mouth of a man, his heart will speak. We will be judged on our deeds, but more than that, on our words. The overall content of our communication will demonstrate whether we have a heart that follows Christ or that is in rebellion against him. Now, there will be other specific aspects of God's character raised as we go through the remaining questions that need to be addressed. Question number three, does it promote the true unity of the true church? Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Note that in verse 3, you have a double present tense. Being diligent, not good English, but excellent Greek, being diligent to be preserving a measure of the importance that Paul, that the Lord gives to the topic of unity within the church, being diligent to be preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one faith, one central body of central fundamental doctrines, and Romans 14 tells us there are secondary issues. Among them, I would state, is probably our perspective uh, on Romans, 14, Romans 13 uh, and our obligations to the government. 
We are called to be diligent to maintain the unity of the true church, those who have been truly born again, who are truly regenerate, who are in full agreement on the fundamental doctrines. And yet we have to allow a certain amount of latitude. We see this at Shepherd's Conference. Uh, For several years now, uh, we've had speakers who may not fully agree with us on certain issues. Most visibly, whether or not you have instrumental accompaniment to the music when we sing. Whether you agree with infant baptism or not, even sometimes in our eschatology. And yet we are in full fundamental agreement on the central doctrines to which we are committed. That needs to be guarding and governing us at all times within the church. It should govern our communication. Shortly before he was arrested, tortured, and executed, in John chapter 17, Christ gives us one of the most astonishing and most remarkable prayers in all of Scripture. Three times, and you have the passage in front of you, Uh, So I'll allow you to read it on your own. But three times in that particular passage, Christ prays for the unity of those who are truly followers of him. And we sometimes make the argument that we don't need to value unity as much as we value truth. You've probably heard one variation or another of that over the course of the years. But let me make it very clear. The truth of the scripture which we proclaim includes the truth of the importance of trying to maintain true unity within the true church. That can never be ignored or disregarded. We have to ask ourselves, does our communication promote true unity? Does it reflect Christ's passion for true unity? Are we promoting or perpetuating a war of words? 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 5, Paul cautions Timothy that we are not to engage in what he uses. He uses the term logomachia, which basically means a war of words. Remember that the next time you go on Facebook. Are you getting into a war of words with people, uh, some of whom share fundamentally the same beliefs that you do? Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. In contrast, the tongue of the wise will bring healing. Does your communication exacerbate existing conflict? Do you rile it up? See how far it can go? Or do you make a conscientious, diligent effort to be promoting healing? in that particular relationship. Colossians 3.14 once again tells us, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, unity and careful communication are particularly significant when the church faces persecution. A year ago, this next week, the elders at Grace Community Church issued a document titled, A Biblical Case for the Church to Remain Open. I approved it at the time. I approve it even more forcefully now at this particular time. One statement in that document, we have always supported the underground church in nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal 
by the state. If you haven't uh, been familiar with the term, that uh, is what we, the underground church is what we refer to as when the church must meet confidentially, quietly, secretly, as I speak this morning. Uh, I know of at least one church, uh, and I've been in communication with them, is having to maintain and meet in an underground manner. Richard Baxter, one of the great uh, theologians of the Puritan era, writes, he says, if princes profanely forbid holy assemblies in public worship, it is not lawful formally to obey them, but it is lawful prudently to do that secretly for the present necessity, which we cannot do publicly. And he goes on to say, and to do that with smaller numbers, which we cannot do with greater assemblies. There is a case for the underground church. Probably no greater authority on the underground church exists uh, than a man by the name of Richard Vermbrand. Vermbrand, if you're not familiar with him, spent numerous years in prison. He preached behind the former Iron Curtain. Uh, Vermbrand actually went so far as to write a document well worth the reading. Uh, and if things continue as we have seen, it may be that we need to require this uh, more widely within the church. But he comments that in no seminary has it been taught how we are to function uh, in an era of the underground church. But he makes the comment that there are two things. Actually, he talks more than two comments, uh, but two that are important to us today. Two particular principles we have to maintain. We have to learn to be silent. First and most important for what we are doing here. And once again, uh, it is the principle that less is more. Another thing which we have to learn in the underground church is to be silent. Pastors, by their very profession, are loquacious people. We have to proclaim the word of God. We do it and we do it well. But a pastor is not meant to speak the whole time. Nobody can preach well unless he listens well. When I look back to my dealing with souls, I have won more by listening to them than by speaking to them. In the underground church, silence is one of the first rules. Every superfluous word you speak can put somebody in prison. He goes on to say, a Christian is a man who speaks little and with great weight. God is in his heaven, therefore let your words be few. He didn't say that. I'm bringing your mind back to Ecclesiastes 5.2. The Christian thinks if he should speak a word, whether it can harm or not. In the underground church, every superfluous word can do harm. Keep your mouth shut and learn to do it now. In World War I, they had a slogan that we would do well to remember if we have to find ourselves in the underground church. Loose lips, sink ships. All right? You get the point. Another principle, and this flows from the topic of the unity of the church, treacherous quarreling. It goes on to say, not the slightest quarrel is permitted in the underground church. Every quarrel in the underground church means arrests, beatings, and perhaps death. Our adversaries watch and listen, 
They have their informers in the underground church. There will always, this is a quote of uh, Kifa Sampangi, who wrote uh, the book about the Ugandan underground church, A Distant Grief, there will always be a Judas. Okay? We have to be very careful uh, as to what we say. Quarrels can bring up and exaggerate the problems and eventually lead to arrests within the church. The preparation for underground work is basic to the preparation for a normal Christian worker, only it is much deeper and it has to become much more real, a part of life. I know countries where many congregations are destroyed by a quarrel between two pastors or two elders of the church. It happens everywhere, but in an oppressive country, it means imprisonment and perhaps death. We have to keep this in mind. When we signed the document or approved the document a year ago uh, that I referred to previously, we had no idea that before a year was out, uh, like-minded churches that we love, both in Canada and in Africa, and probably other parts of the world, uh, in response to government overbearing regulation, would have to be meeting underground. We have to remember that we have to keep our words under control and we have to be diligent to maintain unity with like-minded believers. Question number four, does it show honor within the family of God? Ephesians 4, 6 says, We have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. Now, this is not talking about some sort of a universal fatherhood of God. This is talking about believers, genuine, born-again, Bible-believing Christians who Romans 8 tells us are able to call God Abba, Father. We have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. That raises the question, does our communication show honor within the family of God? Does it show honor within the family of God? Implementing that, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 2, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. Young men tend to forget this at times when they're caught up with a certain amount of zeal, but they are not to sharply rebuke an older man either within their own church, or as a leader of a different church. To the younger men, interact with younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity, complete purity. We love the hymn or the song recently written uh, by Kristen Getty, I'm going to read a portion of it. It's difficult for me to go through it without beginning to be moved uh, almost to the point of tears. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I find a place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am. For hands that should discard me hold wounds which tell me, come. Beneath the cross of Jesus, my unworthy soul is one. And then she asks the striking question, 
Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Does our communication provide the honor that should take place within a family? Or does it violate the importance of that particular principle? How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Question number five. Does your communication reflect your calling and commission? Now, looking out at uh, this audience, I would say most of us probably come within the last category. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we understand it as the Great Commission. Having gone into all the world, we are to teach and proclaim the gospel, teaching men all that has been taught to us, calling them to baptism, calling them to godliness in lifestyle, making disciples. Is our communication consistent with that calling? Now, Ephesians 4, uh, a passage that we did not include in our reading, 4.11 tells us that certain men have been appointed in leadership within the church. They're referred to as apostles. They're referred to as teachers. We would also understand them to include elders. They are put in that position uh, with a purpose of training the saints for the work of ministry. Question is, are you equipping saints for the work of service and the building up of the body, or by your communication, are you going against that particular goal? The elders are also given the responsibility of sounding warnings. Acts 20 resurrects or pulls up the concept of the watchman that you see in Ezekiel chapter 3 and chapter 33, Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have taught the whole counsel of God. But he also goes on to state that the elders are to guard and watch and protect the flock from two things, from ravenous wolves that would come from the outside and from those within the church who would arise and distort the truth for the purpose of drawing people after themselves. It's very possible. Uh, Both uh, R.C. Sproul and Alexander Strauch uh, know that when, or mention or indicate that when Paul is referring to Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander, at least they imply that this is uh, the case, Paul may well be referring to some of the elders who arose within the Ephesian church for the purpose of perverting the truth and drawing people after themselves. But that raises the question, are the warnings, and elders are to give warnings, are the warnings that we give accurate, timely, and correct? We all know the story of the boy who cried wolf. He cried wolf so often that when a real wolf came, no one took him seriously. And the flock was decimated. The same thing can happen spiritually if our warnings are not accurate, timely, and correct. Does our communication 
demonstrate integrity of speech. And you see that uh, in Ephesians, Paul is dealing with a situation where the elders are to prepare the church, equip the church for the work of ministry against the backdrop of deceitful human scheming. He refers to that in Ephesians, against the backdrop of those who would purvey false doctrine. When you are proclaiming the truth of God, refuting false doctrine, refuting human scheming, you must do so with an innate, built-in, practicing, godly integrity, an integrity of speech. Integrity of speech, I would define it as an active realization that all that we say or communicate is in the presence of a holy, omnipresent, and omniscient God. What you communicate in even the slightest context is known by a holy God in charge of the universe. While we must be able to speak appropriately to other individuals, to different individuals coming from different perspectives, the man of God must not be, and Paul uses the expression, double-tongued. He must not be hypocritical. Now, amplifying the concept of being double-tongued, my friend, brother, and fellow elder, Han Cho, and I'm going to embarrass him by giving his quote, I've heard it said that flattery is saying something to a man's face that you'd never say behind his back and gossip is saying something behind a man's back that you'd never say to his face. Well, both of those cliches would be a violation of the requirement not to be double-tongued. A double-tongued man will learn, sometimes quite quickly, that the congregation doesn't trust him, that his leaders receive his reports and assessments with doubt, very justifiable doubt if he is double-tongued, and that people will close the loop and find out what he really said, what he really did behind that person's back. Now, I deliberately, I'm going to understate the point, but it needs to be made in light of some recent uh, uh, news media stories involving the church. Plagiarism. Plagiarism where you claim someone's comment, someone's statement as your own without proper attribution, is inconsistent with integrity of speech. Making false assurances by email or text or otherwise of love to someone that you are pastoring in your church while having an affair with his wife is inconsistent with integrity of speech. I would also add that filing fraudulent loan applications, well, you purport to be a man of God, or filing false and fraudulent tax returns are also inconsistent with integrity of speech. We must be known as men and women whose communication is consistent with and marked by 
integrity of speech. Question number seven, does our communication demonstrate wisdom from God? Ephesians 4.17 describes the unbelieving Gentiles by the phrase, they act with darkened understanding. In contrast to that, we are called to act with wisdom. Now, when we talk about wisdom, we have to always remember there are two types of wisdom. There is a wisdom we read in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, a wisdom from above. And there is also a wisdom straight out of the pit of hell. We have to look closely at the wisdom behind our conduct, behind our communication. Is your communication on social media, on email, orally, is it characterized by the wisdom of God? Uh, I would have to have another entire session to really go into it, but we need to act our, ask ourselves, is our communication governed by the principles of wise communication that we read in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Proverbs? Some of the passages are very uh, familiar to you. A soft answer turns away wrath. Godly wisdom. A wise tongue makes knowledge acceptable. A wise tongue will allow you to communicate difficult, hard fact in a way that can be accepted, absorbed, treated, considered by those to whom you speak. I've already mentioned Proverbs 10:19, where there are a multitude of words, transgression is unavoidable. James tells us, let a man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Godly wisdom will call you to delay the speed and the pace of your response. Proverbs 18.13 tells us it is shame and folly to decide a case. When I was hearing cases, I needed to remember that quite frequently. Uh, to decide a case before you've heard it all. Have you heard the entirety of what someone is trying to communicate to you? Have you taken into account the fact that they may be struggling with how to express it themselves? Okay. Do you fully understand what they are trying to say before you have phrased your response? Is the communication in keeping with the time and place? One passage in Proverbs that I love, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, I'm prone to fault here myself, early in the morning, hey, how you doing? And you haven't had your coffee yet. <laughs> Proverbs tells us it will be reckoned as a curse. Okay, those of you that are morning people, keep that in mind when you interact with your close friends who've been up half the night. Alexander Strauch has a great book uh, that I'd refer you to, uh, chapter 3 in that book, If You Bite and Devour One Another. An excellent book in terms of how to implement uh, the whole issue of wise communication. 
a wise communication that is characterized not by a wisdom from below, but by a wisdom from God. We talked about this this morning. Is our communication true? Twice, uh, near the end of the book, or near the end of the chapter that we're looking at, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul brings out the point that we are to speak truth. We are called to speak the truth. You see that uh, in Ephesians 4.15, and if I recall correctly, 4.25. Is it confirmed as objective truth? If I have any uh, fans here of uh, the TV show Downton Abbey, you'll recall that one of the characters in that uh, makes the statement at one point, she says, the truth is neither here nor there. It's the look of the thing that matters. Great television, terrible theology. (laughs) What we are talking about is truth that has been confirmed and would stand up examined in a court of law. Is it just opinion? Is it just your perception? Or is it confirmable objective truth. Does your communication, in contrast, demonstrate the evil one's disdain for truth? In John 8, 44, Dr. MacArthur has been speaking uh, on this aspect of the evil one's character quite a bit in recent uh, months. The evil one is described by two features. He is referred to as being a murderer, And he is referred to as being a liar. He is a liar. When he speaks lies, he speaks his native language. He has done so from the beginning. Applying the words in Jude, may the Lord rebuke him for that. Does our communication demonstrate the character qualities of the evil one? Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 tells us that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination unto him. Among them, we read twice a reference to lying. A lying tongue, a false witness that speaks lies. Six things that God hates, lying tongues. Revelation 22.15 reminds us, it should tell us, and it should cause a great deal of soberness for us. Consistent, unrepentant, unforgiven liars. Partaking of the character of the evil one would not be comfortable in heaven, and they are therefore excluded from heaven. Let a man examine himself as to the content of his speech. Is our speech slanderous? Ephesians 4.31 tells us, let all malice, let all slander cease. A measure of the importance of this principle, it is prohibited at least 13 times in Scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's a measure of how serious a problem this was in the early church. And regrettably, it is a measure of how serious a problem it can continue to be in the church today. 
Slander, by definition, would be a false defamatory statement concerning someone else. Sometimes you'll hear someone referring to uh, the concept of true slander. That's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Slander is a very serious matter. Another question to be erased, is it gossip? Slightly different from slander in that it can at times have a true content, but be communicated in a very malicious, secretive context. Be careful about gossip. Perhaps one of the best definitions of gossip would be this, idle talk which foolishly or maliciously spreads rumors or fact with an absolute, at an absolute minimum, a disregard, a reckless disregard of the truth. Is it gossip? Believers are not to be characterized by gossip. The shorter catechism, shorter Westminster catechism, question number 78, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment, the ninth of the ten commandments? What is forbidden in the ninth commandment is whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Yeah, sometimes we do have to speak, and we have to speak candidly and clearly, but it should not be with any kind of a heart's desire to defame, to arouse prurient amusement. It should be with grief and with sorrow. Okay? Another issue that has to be addressed at times, I spent a year a career dealing with securities fraud, or working in securities fraud cases where people uh, are fraudulently obtaining investments. I can maintain or carry out a fraud by falsely telling you there is gold in them, there are hills. Or I can also defraud you if I don't tell you that the only gold in them, there are hills, is gold that I put there with a shotgun blast into the side of the rock wall. If I don't tell you something that you need to know, I have defrauded you into making an investment. Deuteronomy 27.19 gives us that principle. In the context there, it's talking about failing to tell a blind man who's walking down the road of a log that's in his way and allowing him to trip over it. So yeah, is it all the truth in a particular situation or context is necessary? You have in front of you right now, if you can see it, a great quote from R.C. Sproul, his classic book, The Holiness of God. He makes the following statement. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. All truth meets at the top. God's truth is holy truth, that is, his truth expresses his own character. Insofar as he is the fountainhead of all truth, all truth points back to him. Since all truth points to him, all truth is sacred. The sacredness of truth is what makes the lie so diabolical in that it distorts our perception of the very character of God. We speak the truth. Our communication should be marked in that regard. 
We're also to speak the truth in love. Question number nine, is our communication characterized by love? Do we speak the truth in love? Love will filter and shape the narrative. If you love someone, and those of you who have had children know how well and how true this can be, you can make an account of what has happened in a particular situation in a way that sounds sympathetic to the individual that you're describing, in a way that looks for the best part of their character. Or you can also make an account describing the same incident That sounds like the individual is one step away from uh, being in jail. Uh, Yeah, how do you shape the narrative? 1 Peter 4, we are told to love each other fervently within the body of Christ. Love covers, he goes on to say and explain the reason, love covers a multitude of sin. This is behind the first two steps of church discipline for private sin that we read in Matthew 18. If your brother has sinned against you, what are you supposed to do? You go to him privately, one-on-one. If your brother repents, you have won him. End of the matter. If he does not repent, take one or two witnesses with you. Again, trying to resolve it lovingly, cover the sin. Again, trying to confirm the objective truth. That love must be genuine. It's all too possible, and we know this well, it's all too possible uh, to have a pretend, fake, bogus love. It's not genuine. Probably the best example, uh, and you have it in front of you, no bless his heart put-downs. There's even, believe it or not, uh, a Wikipedia article. If you type in on later on in the afternoon, of course, uh, into Wikipedia on your smartphone, just type in the phrase, bless your heart, and see what you find. Uh, It's used as a put-down. Bless your heart. You can't help being a moron. (laughs) You can say anything you want in certain parts of our country of a defamatory nature as long as you proceed it with the expression, bless your heart. Uh, It's bogus, and we have to realize it's not a genuine love. We have to speak as believers with true, genuine love, speaking the truth all the while. Question number 10, and this is probably, if you're still with me, this is probably the most important takeaway from the morning. As my son, who is here today, could confirm, I tried to drum this into my sons uh, throughout their time of growing up. Uh, My son, Steve, actually features it in the sermon that he preaches on a relational terrorist topic. Does it violate, does our communication violate the ENG principle? Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let me add to that, from your email, from your social media, from your cell phone, from your text messages. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, 
but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What's the ENG principle? Question number one, is it edifying? Does it help to build up those to whom you are speaking? Does it help to build up the church, the body of Christ? Is it edifying? Number two, is it necessary? It's amazing, and I would include myself fully in this category, how much of what we communicate is not necessary. Is it really necessary for me to tell someone what I really think of the outfit that he or she is wearing? Is it really necessary for me to tell someone that I think it would be a good idea for them to lose about 25 pounds? Probably not. In fact, it would probably be very offensive. Um, Is it necessary? Is it grace-giving? Will it impart the grace of God? Or will it grieve the Holy Spirit? The proximity of verse 30 to verses 29 and 31 leave the inescapable conclusion that if we violate this principle, if we engage in slander, if we engage in malicious speech, particularly within the context of being within the church, particularly within the context of the family that God has provided us, within the context of other believers, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Heavy concept. We do not want to go anywhere near to experiencing or defining that in our own lives on an experiential basis, what that involves. Stay as far away from that as you possibly can. Now, what do we do with this morning, all of this this morning? Haggai 1.7 tells us something that we need to remember. Consider your ways. Think about what you've been doing. Does our speech demonstrate what James 1.26 would tell us is worthless religion? You claim you're saved. You claim you're a believer. Is your claim to religion worthless? Is it bona fide or is it genuine? Hopefully for none of us, that will be something that we would have to answer yes. In most of our cases, it's a situation where we need to excel still more. Our communication has by and large been of godly nature, but we need to improve and we need to grow. We're necessary. Hosea 14, 1 through 2 tells us sometimes we need to take words with us and repent. As I mentioned earlier, repentance is an ongoing, continuing lifestyle of the believer. We see that in Matthew chapter 5. Sometimes where division may have occurred because of inappropriate speech and not necessarily the speech of ourselves, it may be as a result of the speech of others, we need to take action 
being diligent to be preserving the unity of the body and pick up the phone and make a call in an effort to seek and maintain proper relationships within the body of Christ. I had to do that within the last 48 hours. This is an ongoing reality in the life of a believer. Sometimes where division may have occurred due to inappropriate speech, we must seek proper reconciliation. Finally, I'll leave you with Psalm 19.14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in the sight of God. We have only approximately 10 minutes before the 10 o'clock hour, and we need to move towards the uh, main worship service. But are there any questions? Yes, sir, speak loud and proud. You spoke of truth and the truth of unity. Can you expand that just a little bit? Sure. Uh, Sometimes, as I indicated, people will justify divisive communication by claiming, we proclaim truth. Okay? And they may be focusing on one particular aspect of the truth, but we have to keep in mind that the truth of Scripture also maintains the importance of true unity between true believers. We can't use as a justification for inappropriate comment, inappropriate conversation, that we're trying to go out and maintain truth. The truth of Scripture reminds us that we have to be diligent to maintain unity while we are proclaiming the truth of the gospel. It is sometimes a balancing act, to be sure, but we must never lose sight of the fact that both are required. Thank you for that question. Any others? Over here, sir. Okay. And I'm just wondering if, let's say I'm a, uh, not a Thomas Pauline pastor, but a great friend of your son. You know that about me. I fellowship his grace. I remember, as you know, I'm not a Thomas pastor, but I'm, and your son is concerned about any my service. If you were to warn him, are you slandering against me? Good question. First of all, if it's true, it's not slander. Okay? Uh, Is it necessary for me to communicate that? If I know that you are a dishonest tax preparer uh, and I know that someone I love is going to be meeting with you, yes, I will give them a warning. And no, it is not gossip. Okay? There's nothing secretive, nothing malicious about that. We've had one incident where uh, an individual contacted us claiming that the leadership of his church was gossiping. What they were doing was discussing a problem that had emerged within his own family and trying to make sure that their response was proper and biblical. They have the responsibility to do that. 
No, it was not gossip. But gossip is sometimes loosely used uh, within believers. You have to make sure that you're carefully describing it when you think it's occurred. Over here. I'm sorry? www.gbchutch.org. Grace Bible Church, Hutchinson. And my son is Steve Crawford, and the sermon you want to look for is titled on how to be a relational terrorist. My daughter-in-law, Anna, also uh, spoke on the same subject in a meeting of women there, uh, and that is also available. Jackie. Oh, yes. <laughs> the prayer requests. Let's guard our mouths when we make prayer requests. It is all too possible for us to make a very defamatory, untrue comment concerning someone else and try to pass it off as, I'm just being a loving brother or sister, and I'm bringing it to the body for prayer. Again, all the more importance, all the greater importance uh, for being careful and guarded in the content of your prayer request. Yes, we need to be praying for one another. And yes, sometimes we will have to understand how we are to pray. By way of comparison, when Dr. MacArthur or someone else in the course of communion mentions a problem that is leading to church discipline, They won't go into all the prurient details. They will say that an individual is not being faithful to his spouse. Pray for them. No more detail than is necessary. Great question, Jackie. Thank you. By the way, also, uh, be careful when you make a testimony. You don't need to include all of the gory details of the life of sin that you lived prior to Christ reaching into your life uh, when you are providing a testimony. Your testimony is not to entertain. It's not to promote you or bring glory to yourself. It's to bring glory to Christ. Okay? Great question. Thanks, Jackie. Yes, over here. Loud, please. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I don't want to mention his name, but... (laughs) And then you give enough details so there's no question as to who it is you're talking about. (laughs) Height, weight, (laughs) gender, 
and he drives a particular kind of car. <laughs> um, yeah, in response to where I think you're going, and forgive me, but to, if I don't allow you to finish saying everything you want, be careful in what you communicate, even in small groups or Bible studies. If you are working with or interacting with a young believer who may not have seriously thought about that, don't hesitate to quietly come alongside him or her and encourage them to be more circumspect in what they're communicating. Because this happens within the church. We would be naive to not realize that. Any other questions? And let's make this the last one. Phil. Colossians 4, Paul says, look, pray for me. And if Paul needed prayer for that purpose, the rest of us aren't far behind. Pray for me that I will know how to communicate the truth of the gospel as I should. By the nature of the case, the unbelieving mind is hostile to the law of God. It cannot receive it. Romans 8, 7. The unbelieving mind cannot receive and respond positively to the communicated gospel. It will be the work of the Holy Spirit that generates that. We need to remember that the default position, the default response is going to be offense. Uh, It is emerging, and I've been shocked at this, but lately over the last uh, several months, international law, and this is in part with input that is coming from Islamic countries uh, and Hindu countries, there is a developing perspective that says, if I am offended, that is a legally protected interest. The nature of the Christian gospel is demonstrated by Isaiah when he sees the sovereign God. I'm undone. I'm ruined. The nature of the cross is to offend the pride of the unbelieving individual who thinks that by his or her own conduct, they can merit the forgiveness of God. So yes, it will cause offense. As a result, we need to be much in prayer that God would provide us wisdom in terms of how we communicate. And one way to be sure that you are doing that is to know the word well enough so that you communicate the word of God Martin Luther made the comment. He says, I didn't do anything. The word did it all. That's true for all of us. We are called to communicate the word of God and let the Holy Spirit work within the life of that man. Great question. Let's bow in prayer and then uh, move on. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of meeting together this morning. Father, I confess that I, as well as all who are here, we struggle with our communication And it's a struggle that all too often demonstrates a rebelliousness to you. We confess that. We ask your forgiveness. We ask your cleansing and purging in each of our lives. Father, as we come to the main worship service, we realize that we are going to be taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, I pray that none would take it in an unworthy manner, with unconfessed sin, with broken relationships, 
Father, we pray that our time in the main worship service would be exalting to you and pleasing. Father, I pray that the time that we have spent this morning would edify your people and cause them to grow in the grace, knowledge, and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.